coming in, one of the first things was to do a really good analysis of our current state. It takes time to get accurate data and you want to do it immediately. <laughs> Cash flow was always an immediate concern, right? When you're new in an organization and there are some challenges, that's always something you got to look at immediately and see if there are going to be some very immediate challenges in that way. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name is Ken Boyd, and I'm a four-time author, including the book Cost Accounting for Dummies. I'm a business writer, a former CPA, and I'm the content marketing manager for Stamply. Joining me today is Jennifer Duplessis, the Assistant Superintendent of Finance and Operations at Lovejoy Independent School District. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for being here. I'm particularly interested in hearing from an educator with everything that went on with COVID. To start with, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to Lovejoy. So I've taken a little bit of a different path, I guess you would say, to arrive at here in Lovejoy. My background was originally on the operations side. I worked for a company that did construction and financing packages for school districts. So I had a wonderful opportunity to travel the country and work with different school systems, putting together construction projects and financing packages to support those construction projects and really enjoyed it. And then had a family and decided that it was time to spend a little less time on the road and was offered a, a position at Arlington ISD, which is a very large urban district, the ninth largest district in Texas at the time. And so that was a wonderful opportunity to uh, make that transition to work inside the school system where I had the opportunity to work with so many before experiencing that change was really wonderful and just really captured my mission. And so I've really enjoyed that. I have a BBA in marketing research, an MBA in strategic management and a PhD in human resource development from the Sewell's College of Business at UT Tyler. I have had this blended background and I, I currently enjoy being an adjunct instructor as well in a college of business. So it helps me keep that uh, tie into the, the education side where I've never necessarily been a K-12 teacher, but I, I mm -hmm. do think it helps me when speaking to folks about their budget to understand some of what it's like to be a teacher in schools today. That's great. What type of courses do you teach as an adjunct? So I've taught organizational development. Right now I'm doing an entrepreneurship class. I've also taught business math and finance for superintendents. Oh, that's interesting. Finance for superintendents. Okay. That's really interesting. What a diverse background. Tell us about the size of your accounting team and, and your organizational structure. Because we're a very small district in Lovejoy. So we have just a little over 4,300 students. We have just a few over 500 total staff members. So we're a, a much smaller organization than what I began in. And our, so subsequently, our finance team as a whole is fairly small. We've got seven. So we've also had some financial dis, uh, 
challenges in past year. So I came in July of last year and that was after a reduction in force. So we did um, have one position that was subject to that. And so it's been real, real interesting difference and challenge when you only have seven people who are doing um, all of your finance functions from finance to budget, accounts payable. We do payroll, we do purchasing, we do contracts. It's a lot in addition to just the real accounting part of the work. So it's been an interesting ride. But the great thing about that size is that we're all in one little corner of, of an office area. So we can uh-huh. step outside and walk into the next person's office and really collaborate together. That's great. And have you been in the office off and on during COVID or how have you handled that? That's a great question. It, it varies so much by organization. I find that fascinating. And because I've had roles over operations as well, I do have that responsibility. It hasn't changed much for operations folks where they really never went home, so to speak, but maybe for a couple of weeks at the beginning of COVID. So that has really impacted the fact that I haven't been out of the office much at all as a result of COVID. But our district as a whole for the finance side, there was quite a bit of time where they would either have flex schedules or alternate days. But for the most part, and especially in this area of Texas, we've been back pretty fully in person all year this year and and most of the year last year. Okay. And that, as you mentioned, that really helps with collaboration when you can just walk into somebody's office rather than trying to do a Zoom call or over the phone or whatever. Absolutely. That's great. That's helpful. I had mentioned to you before we started, I have two friends who serve on school boards, and I know that's a huge commitment. It's been very challenging during covid How often do you meet with your board and what type of information are you providing or what do they focus on? We have a fantastic board in Lovejoy ISD. I've thoroughly enjoyed working with them. They um, are just very involved in our community as a whole. They, and as you said, these last couple of years have not been easy for board members. And January, by the way, is board appreciation month. So um, still- you might have a couple of days left to, to <laughs> pass on your appreciation. I do tease them often that they do not get paid enough <laughs> because they don't get paid anything. I will tell you that we typically meet twice a month on a scheduled basis with our board of trustees. We do a board workshop on the first Monday evening and a regular board meeting on the third Monday of the month, typically. And our goal is to really place items on that workshop agenda that we really truly want to have an opportunity to workshop and really talk through some things. We try to minimize action as much as possible on those board meetings so that we can speak to items before we bring them for formal action at the regular meeting. But sometimes due to timing, that's not always possible. But our board really wants to be involved and informed. And some of that does come on the heels of prior difficult financial decisions or wanting to be more involved, wanting to have more of that knowledge. So in addition to the workshop and the regular board meeting every month, they have interim meetings with the superintendent or the executive board may have meetings on various topics or we provide additional information, obviously, as often as they request it or or we feel like there's something that they need to know about. We do something called a Thursday board note, which I don't think is all too uncommon for school districts, just a kind of an update weekly on what's going on. So if there's a a finance item that we think is relevant or a project or something that may need to be funded, we'll provide some ongoing developmental information. If there's a grant we're thinking about applying for that might have a tight timeline on it, 
that gives us also an opportunity to provide those updates as well. Of course, we provide monthly financials and investment reports and all those things that board, board members are provided with in most organizations. We do our annual financial report, our debt transparency reports. We have a lot of compliance things in a school district that we do. But I also realize that, especially in our community, we have some really sharp, talented community members who are very interested in what we're doing and participating and and asking questions and that type of thing. So I've also tried to ensure that when we provide reports to the board, we're giving background information and we're sharing what are the levers in school finance because they are so different than private sector. Oftentimes, just the way our funding formula works, the terminology that we use is different. So we try to make sure that we're also making it relevant. Sometimes you tuck a monthly financial report into a board meeting, and it may not be something that people are really able to jump into and understand. So we do some some other reporting through you know PowerPoint presentations within the board meeting to highlight items of importance. What type of technology tools do you use? Do you have an ERP system or is there anything unique to education that you use as far as technology? We are somewhat constrained in public environments to fund some of those items, but of course we have an ERP in Lovejoy. We use something called a sender and we get support on that from one of our regional um, education service centers. We also have a student data system or SIS that is a really a big part of the data that we need to project things. And so that is what we currently use in Lovejoy is called PowerSchool, but it does a whole host of things related to student data. I've also used a, a program that we use where we're looking at what our projections are and benchmarking, which is always difficult in a school district to capture that accurate comparison information. So we've used a a platform called Forecast 5 that pulls state data from state reports and generates some reporting or some analytics that we can use. That's been a new thing that we've done just because traditionally uh, the district in the past hadn't done a great deal of that. And it helps us to do it faster because we are so Um, short staffed. Mm -hmm. We also have an online board book that we use so we can share documents with our board, upload it, that type of thing. We obviously have all the timekeeping, HR employment leave and absences kind of items in in a software package called Frontline. And I think the most recent thing I've probably done is a debt transparency dashboard, which may sound, we have to provide all those documents and things that we do. And we used to always generate a PDF report And our financial advisor has worked with us and developed a live dashboard, which is really nice. We can link it to the the website and and have live updates. And it's not quite as manual of a process. Yeah, I I went out and took a look at it before we met. And that is user-friendly. Yes. Okay, great. I'm going to shift gears and talk a little bit more about management because you really faced a challenge when you started, as you mentioned. How do you handle the situation of coming into a school that needs to rebuild its finances from the ground up, which sounds very challenging. It certainly is. And I am grateful every day that I have a fantastic team and really a very supportive administration and board. They're definitely sleepless nights. So having them to you know work with and know that, that they're supporting what we're trying to do is very helpful. And I'm so glad you asked this question because I feel like so many local government and educational institutions face this kind of challenge, and there's not really a lot of information out there. And how, how do you rebuild the public trust? How do you 
um, go about this work while you're also trying to rebuild your financial story. So really coming in, one of the first things was to do a really good analysis of our current state. And that's difficult because it takes time to get accurate data and you want to do it immediately. (laughs) Cash flow was always an immediate concern, right? When you're new in an organization and there are some challenges, that's always something you got to look at immediately and see if there are going to be some very immediate challenges in that way. So we did some work around assessing that. We were able to put some things in place where if we did have a cash flow issue, we knew how we were going to handle it. And fortunately, we have, we've not had to implement any of those. And I'm thankful for that. But it, when you've never been that close to having to do something like a tax anticipation, tax receipt anticipation note, and you're faced with that situation for the first time, building that plan is a little bit nerve wracking. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm very pleased we were, we're continuing to make strides, keeping our board informed along the way of what we're discovering discover everything or learn everything at once. But one of the first things was we had our auditor come in the week after I started. So we had our annual audit and my approach with that was my, my mission here is to rebuild our financial story. It's to be rebuild that for our community and for our students and staff who deserve it. So there's no place for egos. There's no place for hiding anything. And really reaching out because of our limited resources to people like our auditor and say, here's something that I haven't seen before. What can I do? What are, sure. what are you seeing? And fortunately, we're certainly not in any uh, situation that we were, you know, had any uh, discrepancies in our financials or anything like that. But having to do some of those analyses that you might not have had to really fully explore before because you weren't in the middle of a cash flow problem. We're, we're definitely interesting. And then making sure when there's a, a disruption of having somebody in place, even if it's a short period of time for school districts is really challenging because we have a number of compliance reports that are required of us. I was really fortunate from the standpoint that the budget had already been adopted and much of it had been entered into our ERP, but not everything was done. And there were a lot of changes made in terms of how the district was going to handle um, financial, some of the financial decisions, such as we opened a child development center. And so there was no budget created for that necessarily. So having to prioritize those immediate needs, take care of the compliance needs and make sure we didn't miss anything on there. Also assessing and being strategic about what we're doing um, moving forward has absolutely been very challenging. What's your fiscal year end? Our fiscal year end is June 30. That's a good question. So uh, again, coming in in July, we were already going on down the road with that. So currently, part of what our goal was is to do a zero-based budget this year. It's the first time Lovejoy ISD has done that. So it's been a it's been a really interesting process. You learn a lot in that process of what people do or don't know in regard to their budget for their sure. particular area. A lot of times as school systems, we have a tendency to either roll over the existing budget or provide a percentage deduction or just add things that people have said that they need, but really diving into dissecting every budget, providing reports to leaders who may not have looked at their budget in the past or been fully aware of it and Uh asking them to prioritize those items is really interesting. We've had some people 
that I've just been coming and tell us, and it definitely didn't follow within the departments you think it might, it, or how long they were here. Some people just have a natural knack. So they would come in and have really great feedback about, I can still lead this campus or this department with this and this, and I think we can cut this. And then we had people that came in and requested four times the budget that they had <laughs> in the current year. Um, when we've had many meetings and, and communications about the fact that we still have work to do. So that, that process has been very interesting, but we know that it's part of growth with, and, and even people who've had a really hard time with it have come back and said, I've learned so much that I was never involved with before. It's a good point. Yeah. And you plan on doing it going forward? Yes. So we are building a, building a three-year plan essentially to get us out of the situation that we were in. And so we've created some board goals. We worked with the board of trustees to develop some strategic goals. Um, for us, the number one goal is rebuilding our fund balance. We are not at a healthy level uh -huh. and we're a small district. We, we're very exposed to risk. So anytime the state legislature changes a piece of the formula, we don't have fund balance there to help us weather the storm. We are a very, our district has a very low percentage of economically disadvantaged students. So we do not get federal funding, very small, if any amounts. And so a lot of the special funding coming down from the federal government and then administered by the states doesn't flow through to our district. That creates an interesting dynamic where the average home price in our community is $650,000 and they've moved here for a reason. They've moved here for the school district and because they can have a beautiful home on an acre or two, and they're on the verge of this community where you're part of a city, but you're almost in the country. And we have a great community, but we're neighboring a lot of larger districts that get this funding and they get these things and our community wants the best for their kids. And so it's always challenging because our formula doesn't help us many times. And that process is always interesting to, to try to manage. And so our number one goal is the rebuilding of fund balance. Mm -hmm. And our number two goal is to provide for compensation. And so we're having to remind folks that we have everything else comes after that. that yeah, that's such a big percentage of a school district's budget. Mm -hmm. The compensation number. What about your, you alluded to property taxes. What about the, the tax rate? Has that changed very much in recent years? And how has that impacted you? That's a great question. So in Texas, we've been um, subject to tax compression several times as the state has determined to compress local um, taxes. And so we we have an opportunity to go for a voter approved tax ratification election, which would allow us to increase the enrichment portion. Tier one or basic allotment we get for, for funding our schools is a net equal proposition. So as our local property tax collections increase that come into the school district, the state balances that out to equal to that tier one basic allotment. Okay. So while our local values are increasing and we're getting a lot more in locally, local collections, our state decreases the amount of funding we receive. So we get a fairly small amount from the state, but we do have the option of adding additional pennies to our maintenance and operations tax rate in order to generate more funds for us to operate off of. So when House Bill 3 was passed in Texas a couple of years ago, and it changed a lot of things about the funding formula, it allowed for some additional allotments and funding, but it also allowed districts to have a vote and get an additional three, a little over three cents in what they call copper pennies or enrichment that would help the district on the M&O side. So 
And that was not something that Lovejoy ISD pursued in the past. And so it's something that our community is just beginning to talk about. If that's for us, doing that three cent increase would generate a net of about $650,000 more a year. And so for a $40 million budget, that's, that's significant. That makes a difference. And so we also have a situation where our state is increasing the exemption level for homeowners for their school taxes. So that's gonna go to the voters in May. So if we were to have our VATRE in November, that would net out essentially. The three cents would almost net out at the same amount that this increased homestead exemption. So it would have virtually no effect on taxpayers except for the increase in their local values, which they have every year. That's interesting. I live in an an older neighborhood where a lot of 1,800 square feet houses are being torn down and Mm. big expensive houses are being built. So the property tax base is going up. Yeah. And that creates a lot of concern among elderly people who don't have kids in school who see their property taxes grow up and still live in the 1800 square foot house. Yes. And so there's a lot of angst about that because our neighbor, the neighborhood is changing completely. And we see a lot of that in our area as well, where people will move out a little bit further to get away from that increasing property value. Yeah, we definitely see similar things. Fortunately here in Texas, their property values are frozen once they hit a certain age. Um, oh, okay. So at 65, um, it no longer you can no longer have a significant in- increase in your that taxable value. So often, oftentimes we're talking to the older members of our community and and making sure that they understand this doesn't actually impact you at all. Yes. And benefits you by having better schools and a better community to live in. That's really interesting. I'll shift gears a little bit. How is the shift of COVID and schools going remote? created an impact on your organization, which I think is the 800-pound gorilla in the room for school districts? We are driven in Texas schools. Our formula is essentially driven by average daily attendance. So it's driven by how many students are in the classroom, not enrolled, but actually in attendance. So it's been extremely challenging because across the board, not only have we had lower enrollment, but we've had lower attendance. So we've lost significant amounts of state funding. Last year, the state initiated a hold harmless, essentially, that we could only lose so much state funding as a result of a formula they created to minimize the impact of reduced attendance because of COVID. So that helped. That helped the districts. The legislature has since deemed that something they're not, they can't do a hold harmless going forward. So they came up with a new thing, an adjustment to your attendance minutes based on past. So this was rolled out this year and they've already had to take it back. Oh. <laughs> the idea was we they would adjust our attendance rate based on prior information, dependent on the formula on your last 18 weeks of school and what your attendance was then. We're already in the last 18 weeks of school and Omicron hit. So it's been very difficult for CFOs to project the economic impact, all we can do is calculate what we know it would do to us on the current formula. Of course, when the state comes out with something that they'll help us with, we calculate what that would be. So we just provide as best information as we can on what the impact of each of those items is, and then wait for more information. Uh, We're sure hoping that they do it a little bit sooner since being a June 30 uh, fiscal year end requires a lot of budget work to be done right now, and we don't necessarily have the information of what that's going to mean for us. Sure. That's such a cash flow problem. Mm. Challenge. 
with your background of a PhD in human resources, how do you think about driving change through your organization from the finance side? Human resources, as, as often as we think our financial resources are strapped in a school district environment at times, and we can't go make more of something and generate more revenue. I do think that our human resources are one of our most variable opportunities. So the more that we can get out of engagement and attentiveness from our staff is really where we can make a big impact. And that's what that's really what we're in the business of doing. We're trying to organize our, our work around staying motivated, dealing with the, the stress of what's going on. The finance team bears a lot of the brunt of a lot of difficult times that people go through because they're the ones that are having to implement a lot of those changes or make the rules, so to speak. So it can be very challenging. Trying to organize this group has been, we've had wonderful personnel since I've been here. We did add one person to the team because we didn't have a great deal of people who were actually, who were degreed or had a great deal of knowledge about the whys and the background of why you make that accounting entry. So that has made a huge difference. So now it's, I'm not the only person of the seven that has that background. So that has made a difference in terms of the skill set available. And so that's been huge. And other than that, I think really with my background in HRD, I arrived into that degree program accidentally. (laughs) I I had an MBA and I had been teaching some classes and I thought, "I, I love research. I would love to do some of that. And the only, basically the only PhD program I could find that was in a college of business was the one in HRD at UT Tyler that I didn't have to quit my job <laughs> to go do. Interesting. Okay. So but, that's how you got there. Okay. Yeah. But it really hit on a lot of, a lot of things that I've been able to research and learn around how, how to coach people and engage them in what we're doing in such a way that, that they can excel, they can sustain being motivated in difficult times. So I think it's been great. More than I could have ever imagined has it helped in building a team that's ready to do the difficult work that we have to do to pave the way for creating the financial sustainability that our community deserves. That's fantastic. Well, it's, it's, it's funny how serendipity, one thing led to another, and then you got the PhD and then you ended up using it, even though it was, you thought you were limited in the PhD you could pursue. I'm going to wrap up here by asking one more question, which is we try to ask at the end of the podcast, if you had to give one piece of advice to modern finance leaders, what would it be? That's a great question, but I'm actually going to use a quote from one of my former assistant directors on the operations side. His advice that he used to give to students when we were teaching them HVAC, you, and you wouldn't necessarily expect he would be the one to give these kids advice because he didn't have a college degree, but he was extremely smart. And he said, never stop learning. And I think we get a lot of times the work that we do by nature keeps us isolated or within our team. And the more we learn about our organization as a whole and what's going on at the state level, and can we influence, how can we influence different things that affect our organization? I just really feel like that growth and development, trying to keep that energy to learn more has really been something that's made a huge difference for me. That's great advice. This has been fascinating. I can't believe all the challenges. I thought somebody running a manufacturing company had a lot of challenges, but you've got them beat, I think. Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time today 
to be on Leaders of Modern Finance. And I so appreciate your time. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to buying one of your books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Amazon. If I can, maybe I can just sell one more book. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.